Guys, I don't mean to brag, but I'm on summer vacation right now. That was my summer vacation chalkline intro music. Welcome to Chalkline. I'm Ann Schwartz, and I am wearing pajamas at 2.30 in the afternoon. Now, granted, it's Sunday, but still, if it was Monday, I could be doing that too. For those of you who are still in school, remember when I go back to school on August 15th, and you don't go back until like September 5th. So I'm bragging a little bit now, but I'll be complaining in two months. Uh, today on Chalkline, I'm going to talk to Lonnie Horn. And actually, we ended up making this two episodes because, and by we, I mean me. I ended up making this two episodes because Lonnie and I talked about such interesting stuff that every time I tried to cut something, I ended up having to go back and uncut it because we reference back to it later. So I ended up making this two episodes. This first one is about 35 minutes of an interview with Lonnie and some stuff at the beginning, and then I'm going to put a little bit more at the end than I usually do. Uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to give you this week's syllabus. So here we go. To read. Uh, currently, I'm reading Lindy West's new book, Shrill, Notes from a Loud Woman, as I'm also a loud woman, so I'm enjoying that greatly. I wanted to tell you this little story that happened. So I tweeted at Lindy about something, and then she was talking about how she had found a Twitter extension that would block a big group of people. So I tweeted back and I was like, really, that exists? And she was like, yeah, and she tweeted it back at me. And I swear to God, for the next 10 minutes, there were at minimum 45 people I had to block because they called me the C word, they called me all sorts of other inappropriate things. Um, I had a couple people threaten to rape me, literally for talking to Lindy West on the internet for three minutes. So I cannot imagine what her life is like if my life was so terrible from 30 seconds of interaction with her. It's a really good book, Shrill. I'm enjoying it a lot. If you don't know anything about her, her, she has a good interview on This American Life that you can listen to. I've linked to it. All right. I don't have anything to listen to this week except for maybe that interview. So I'm going to give you a two-read number two. There was the, I say there was the campus rape at Stanford, but I assume this was not the only campus rape at Stanford because, you know, campus rape is kind of insane. But there was the unconscious girl who was raped at Stanford by the swimmer, um, and she wrote a little piece that she read. A little piece is not the right. She wrote a big piece that she read for the judge at the end of her trial. This boy who, when she was unconscious, tried to rape her, dragged her, and left her behind a dumpster he's only getting six months in jail for this. And the only reason he was caught was because two people rode by on their bicycles and saw him doing this. It's worth reading. Um, every single woman that I follow on Facebook, which is an exaggeration, but I would say at least 15 of the women I follow on Facebook have shared this. And it's worth your time to read it. It's deep and kind of painful um, as someone who taught at an all-girls school, I feel a deep connection to safety of women on college campuses. I don't know how else to talk about that. I'm going to get upset if we keep talking about it. So I'm going to keep moving. Um, take a minute, though, and get upset. It's worth your time. And if you are a dude who listens to my podcast, I'm asking you, why have you not shared this on Facebook? Why have only my lady friend shared it? 
lastly, to watch. So I'm on summer vacation, so I've been binge-watching terrible things. And right now I am binge-watching Being Mary Jane with Gabrielle Union. And it's a little bit trashy, but it's so good. Um, It's on Netflix the first two seasons. So if you've finished The West Wing, possibly, uh, maybe you want to get on board with this one. I'm supposed to tell you that this week's chalk line is dedicated to Michelle because she has to drive for eight hours tomorrow. I probably should have just made one long episode for Michelle to listen to, but instead you get two shorter ones. Uh, You're going to love this interview with Lonnie. So Lonnie and I talked about um, her PhD work, how she got there, what she's teaching now, and how much she loves and appreciates classroom teachers, and some observational slash group work, like not group work, but teacher collaboration work tips that she has for you. There's a little bit more of me talking in this than I would have liked, but I hope you will listen and enjoy my chalk line with Moni. Welcome to Chalkline. Do, do, do. Who are you and what pronouns do you prefer? I am a she, her. Um, who am I? I am Ilana Horn. Cool. Uh, this class, this is a strange question, but where are you and what does your classroom look like? I am in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm a college professor. So I share my classrooms with other people in the university. I don't get to set it up like mm-hmm. by my preference. In fact, I sometimes like every semester when there's new classes assigned, it's always a big deal when I check and see which class did I get? Did I get that terrible room with no whiteboards in the basement? Mm-hmm. Or did I get the beautiful room with, like, the old fireplace and the functioning technology? <laughs> um, what are you teaching right now? Well, it's summer. But the, what I last taught um, this past semester, I teach a foundations course for our doctoral students called um, Teaching as a Social Practice. Um, this coming fall, I'm going to be teaching a course in scholarly writing and doing a research group. Um, around different pedagogies for teacher preparation. Doing a research group around different pedagogies for teacher Wow, that's cool. Yeah, I think I have a pretty fun job. Can you give me an example of a couple different pedagogies for teacher prep? Sure. I mean, in the 80s, there was a real focus on reflection as a way of getting teachers to think about what they do. Um, currently there's a big push towards what are called core practices. And if you go on the University of Michigan Teaching Works website, you can get a list of, I don't remember the number anymore, but somewhere around 20 high leverage practices that all beginning teachers need to know in order to be effective beginners. Um, there are, you know, there's like the Doug Lamov school of teaching like a champion. Mm-hmm. Um, there's and and so like things like the new teacher project will they have a process that they try to get people they evaluate their new teachers around those teach like a champion Lamov practices um you could call what TFA does and other okay. sort of short-term programs you can think of it as a pedagogy for teacher education underlying all of those are ideas about what new teachers need to know and be able to do, and how we get them to learn those things. And so this group that you're going to be working with, are you going to evaluate various different types of these? 
Yeah, we're going to look into them. I mean, some of these things have been written about more exclusively, especially, I mean, explicitly, especially the ones coming out of the academy, like the stuff from University of Michigan um, that's been written about in the research literature. The stuff with TFA and the New Teacher Project, which is Michelle Rees, or it was Michelle Rees' project, um, those are not necessarily written about, but there's certainly documents out there that capture what they consist of, and we have people in our midst who have participated in them. But, you know, you could just sort of go through each of them and say, okay, what, what's assumed about what, what is teaching in this model? What does it mean to be a good beginner, and how do people learn these things? Very cool. I think so. <laughs> That's incredibly cool. Um, how long have you been at Vanderbilt? I just finished my seventh year, I think. Yeah, crazy, but true. Sixth year, seventh year. Okay. I think it was my seventh year. Um, and before that, I was at University of Washington for six years. Can you talk about your process from from classroom to PhD and graduate and all of this? Yeah, that's an important story. And, um, you know, one that I obviously have a lot of feelings about because I – hope that it comes through in what I write and do that I really care about classroom teaching and I value good classroom teachers. So leaving the classroom was not, uh, I don't know what, what should I say? A facile decision for me. It was, it was something that I put a lot of thought into, um, and felt conflicted about through a lot of graduate school. Um, but I taught, um, in Alameda, California at Alameda high school um, which is like a really fascinatingly, like a lot of California schools, fascinatingly diverse, both racially, linguistically, and economically mm-hmm. comprehensive high school. And I loved it. I had some great success with some of my students. Uh, I had a couple of allies in the department, and we managed to sort of like make a little side pipeline to keep kids moving through and be successful and feel good. But I had enough experiences of um, spending a year or two building up a kid and building up their confidence and having them come to me and say, Ms. Horn, I think I only learn math the way you teach it. Oh, I hate that. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, it was just one time too many of feeling like, are you serious? Like, I just, like, poured my heart and soul into you know, making a good classroom environment where you can feel competent and supported and, and confident in your own ability to learn math. And then you go back to old schoolville and in the realm of like memorization and we're going to be nitpicky about every little minus sign that you drop and, you know, all, all of that, the usual math game and, mm-hmm. and these kids' confidence would just be crushed. And so I really had this kind of deep question of like, wait a minute, if I as a new teacher am able to have success with the students who are supposedly the hardest to teach, yet they're coming back to me and saying, um, I don't have enough right now to really give me the confidence to keep going in this pipeline. Um, what, what's wrong here? And so I went to graduate school thinking that I was interested in issues of school reform because I thought there were sort of fundamental things about the way school was organized, Mm -hmm. the way we grade. Um, there's, it seemed as if there were things that we could do sort of systemically to, 
keep those kids in math and being successful in math longer. And um, so that was what my initial question was going into graduate school. I'm going to pause and let you ask me another question because I have a tendency to ramble. No, no. I was listening. <laughs> I, I'm fascinated by this because I, I don't spend a lot of time with people who are doing PhDs, right? Because mm-hmm. I spend all my time in the classroom. Um, so you're at the school and these kids are coming back to you and they're reporting sort of a general like lack of confidence or essentially just being beaten down in math class, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, so then did you apply? Like, what was your next step? You were like, I'm going to go to graduate school and change schools as a whole. Well, I thought, I, I, I think I went more as wanting to learn than thinking, like, every step of the way, I've been more driven by my curiosity than, like, some grand plan. <laughs> um, so I was like, there must be people out there who thought about this. And, like, I can learn and, you know, draw on these experiences I've had to, um, you know, just change these conversations a little bit. Um, so I, I am probably like not a good model for how to do this. <laughs> I'm not but, sure there is one. Yeah. Um, I looked, I, I didn't want to move for graduate school. I was living in the Bay area. And so I was looking at Stanford and Berkeley. And at the time, Stanford didn't have anybody who was in mathematics education. They were sort of between math ed people. And so I was like, okay, Berkeley. So I applied to Berkeley and just that was it. I didn't do like some great, like I visited all these campuses and I did visit Berkeley, but I didn't like do this great search. Cause I was pretty clear. I didn't feel like moving. Um, I love this by the way, cause I yeah. applied to graduate school and I applied to like seven schools and visited and that's what that. most people are supposed to do. You have to understand like my parents, although I was raised in a middle-class community, my parents were very like culturally very working class. So like I did not have the sort of concerted cultivation upbringing that most middle-class kids do of like, oh, we're going to make sure you get in all these activities and we're going to college. I didn't have any of that. I had Canadian parents who didn't understand that was a thing. Okay. So you understand like being a little out of sorts with these processes. Like I was stunned when I learned how people applied to graduate school after I got in. Like the and I figured it out in graduate school, but in high because I was working at one of those really fancy private schools, right? There you go, right. And so I saw these kids doing college the way you're supposed to do college, I suppose. Yeah, but I mean, I went to a fancy undergraduate, and there were all those kids from the Northeast who did all this stuff. And I just thought, oh, that's what people in the Northeast do. They're kind of funny. But um, I don't know. I... I don't mean to make myself sound like this accidental scholar, but there's a plausible version of my story that can be told as like, a, oops, I guess I'll try this next. Um, you know, I, I obviously was a little more intentional than that, but it's, it's, right. kind, of, it's kind of funny. Anyway, so I, I only applied to Berkeley. I got in, and so that was the beginning for me. Um, at the time, in the program I was in, I was the only one who had taught in a public high school, public school. Um, And I, not that long ago, found my journals from that time of my life. Um, And I guess I spent a really long time wondering if this whole thing of graduate school was a terrible idea. Um, Because the, the, the sort of short version that I told is that the, my um, 
program in particular was pretty cognitively oriented. So we would learn things like about how students have these kinds of misconceptions and all these folks who'd never really spent a lot of time in, or maybe no time, in diverse urban classrooms would say these things. And this has become like my Incredible Hulk trigger phrase, like, oh, teachers should just. Oh. And I would, like, I'd kind of feel enraged. Like, what are you talking about? Teachers should just. Like, what is this just? What are these resources you imagine that would allow teachers to just? And do you understand that sometimes kids don't want to go with a program? You know, just all of these things that were very, very real and vivid and present for me were not as much uh, sort of shared experience across the cohort. Yeah. Which made me think maybe educational research is kind of dumb because, um, you know, anybody who's saying teachers should just is missing a huge part of the story. Yeah. So I probably nearly dropped out of graduate school several times. Another sad part of the story, though, is that as a graduate student, earning a graduate student stipend and um, uh, tutoring on the side, Mm -hmm. I was making more money than I was as a first-year teacher. That's insane. Yeah. It's... It is insane. I've learned since that I was in one of the lowest paying districts in um, <laughs> in the county that I was working in. So, but yeah, it was, it is insane. So I actually had economic incentive to stick with graduate school. Um, so I, I did, I stuck with it and there were, I guess, enough positive experiences along the way that you know, made me keep going. I developed friendships. I found sort of people who I could have conversations that I could relate to a little bit more um, outside of my immediate program. Um, But I kind of made a promise to myself early in graduate school. I I said to myself, if I ever become one of those people who like is saying stuff that doesn't make any sense to practicing teachers, I think I'll have failed and I'll I'll need to find like another bag because I did not want to become this sort of egghead ivory tower academic. So it's been really important to me to kind of keep um, my work centered around classrooms and teachers and from the perspective of the reality of teachers work, not from the sort of ideal type of, oh, look at this. This is how this aspect of learning works in isolation. So teachers should just I really wanted to keep my my um, eyes on and and tell stories that that captured how hard teaching is and how complex it is and and how how much teachers have to pay attention to so many things at once and how political it is and all of that stuff. Like yeah. I never wanted to slough that off. I think part of the dilemma that comes from becoming a researcher is that research by its nature needs to be on a topic, like isolate factors or yeah. look at particular strands of, of uh, things that go on in a classroom. So research by its nature partitions the complex work of teaching into you know, component parts. But teachers don't get to do that. Nope. You have to deal with 
everything all at once. And sometimes, and the other thing is research often emphasizes norms. And you might have an entire class of outliers. So <laughs> that is a really cool sentence. But <laughs> isn't it's it the true? truth? Well, haven't you had that class? I don't know that I've ever had a class full of norms. <laughs> That's me too. So um, I don't think I ever did. But so I think that I was, I part of the intellectual challenge for me is I think that there's a lot to be learned from research. I think that isolating things in that way and breaking things down into component parts and figuring out what's typical, I think there's value in it. But it's not always apparent to, to practicing teachers because of the nature of their work and, and the simultaneity and the complexity and all of that stuff. So I like the challenge of trying to think about how to identify problems that reflect that complexity and write about it in ways that can resonate and be meaningful to folks in the field who are doing the work. Yeah, I feel like every time you say teachers should just, it leads to teachers saying, my students don't, or yeah. my students, which is my incredible Hulk one, uh -huh. is when I go to something and I hear someone say something really smart and someone responds with, well, my kids don't do that. Uh-huh, right. Well, my kids can't. Yeah. Are your kids oh. broken? Mm-hmm. Well, in the, in the book I'm working on right now, um, one of the things that I've, I've always been fascinated by is how our discourse around babies and toddlers is about how curious they are and how inquisitive they are. And, you know, there's a book called The Scientist in the Crib. You know, we, we, we recognize how important curiosity is and how, how it drives so much development. But then we look at adolescents and we're like, oh, no, they don't have any of that. And, and like what happens in those intervening years? It's not that many years no. between being a toddler and being a teenager. And, uh, you know, they're, they're still curious. We just sometimes work things out in such a way that doesn't really draw out their curiosity or, you know, line up with it well the connection you're making between us sort of giving up, like, where does that happen? Where do we stop thinking kids are, because I feel like even like, like, even elementary school kids, we still think of as being curious. Uh, yeah, and I don't know if it's because most in, in the US, most elementary school teachers spend the entire day with right. kids, you know, so they get to see them across multiple content areas, and sometimes even at recess or, you know, and so they can see like more of the whole child. And there's something I think that happens when we start specializing and having um, subject matter teachers that we, we sometimes it's, I think it's easier for folks to lose sight of the whole child. Yeah. It's, it's making me think about the idea that like, if I only see a kid in math class, then sometimes I never see them doing something they consider themselves good at. Exactly. Like, and that's huge, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm not a big, like, whole child to me, which I think what you're saying is super important, falls into the category of lifelong learner, which mm -hmm. are just phrases that I hate. Okay. <laughs> for, for no reason other than I feel like they're like, well, yeah, I should look at the whole kid, but I don't think about it as much as I probably should. Um, 
I don't know why that phrase, it irks me and I don't know why. Well, who knows? It could have been that somebody once said it in a way that rubbed you the wrong way. I mean, part of what's so slippery about language and education is that, you know, the same phrase, something that can drive our practice and be so meaningful to us personally and how we solve and define problems that we confront as teachers, you know, somebody else is like, oh, no. And it turns out that when you sort of hash it out and talk about, well, what do you mean by whole child? What do I mean by whole child? Right. Well, it's actually... We're coming from like similar places in our values, but the the way you've come to understand it through the context you've encountered it, it doesn't work for you as like a way of thinking about what you do. But for me, it works because whatever, you know, but I, another example like that is differentiation. I, there was an (laughs) Ed Week article, I don't know, probably like a year ago that was like differentiation doesn't work. And then like the following week differentiation works and we all should be doing it. You know, it's like we do not pin down our terms in education because it depends on what you think good teaching is. Right. And so if, and how you think learning happens, because if you think learning happens when individuals, individual needs get met at their appropriate cognitive level and they're challenged, da, 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 you know, that might lead to a different form of differentiation than if you think all kids can learn and everyone needs different access points to important ideas, that would lead to a second and different idea of what differentiation is. So it's, there's so many unspoken premises underlying these concepts that it makes it hard to have conversations sometimes. Right. And we're just sort of throwing these words around. And mm-hmm. expecting that everyone knows what we mean. Right. Differentiation so being a really good example. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. I just, so I don't know if you know this, I'm in my seventh year, sixth year of teaching. Mm-hmm. And I just had to complete our beginning teacher induction program. Oh, pizza. Uh-huh. Because, I was one of the first pizza people. Because I was out of state. Uh-huh. So I came back and had to do my second year of pizza as a sixth year teacher. Fun. Uh-huh. And there was a lot of stuff around, like, how are you explicitly differentiating? And uh-huh. I was like, I was like, well, it's, it's explicit in the way that I seat the kids and the way that I talk to them, but I teach in all heterogeneous classes. So, like, my differentiation is in my teaching practice less than in, like, but they were looking for, like, what handouts was I giving out. Yep. Exactly. Perfect. Perfect example. And I was like, what the, what, I don't give out different handouts to different kids. Right. Because that's weird. Yeah, it is weird. And it makes kids super uncomfortable. Really uncomfortable. Wait, why did I get this handout? Why'd she, oh no, I got the dummy handout, didn't I? You think I'm a dummy, don't you, Miss Schwartz? Right, exactly. Um, So how many years did you teach before you decided to do this? It was, well, it depends on how you count. You know, okay. two or three, depending on how you count. And then part of my deal was that I um, I ended up in my dissertation because, like I said, it was really important to me to center um, what I was doing around what actual working teachers do. I ended up teaching in the department I was studying for my dissertation. So that was kind of cool because – they are the famous in the math ed world um, rail side teachers. Have you heard of them? 
it, it was someone's big research thing. Is it Joe Bowler's? Well, I was there first, but yes, Joe was there second. <laughs> it's your Actually, big research thing. There was Sorry, no, it's okay. Um, I was there before she was, but there are, there were, had been other people who had um, done research um, at the school because they had some connections to Stanford and Mills College, and you know had a whole bunch of student teachers from those programs, and they were pretty well known for having. Um, tailored this idea of complex instruction to um to uh math because okay. complex instruction as a as a approach to teaching was not content specific but they recognized the power very early on of really addressing issues structuring classrooms in ways that address issues of status and smartness um for kind of bringing in more participation in math class so they had developed this, and um, so it was great, great professional development for me to be able to teach alongside them because I was, you know, working and using their pedagogy that they had developed and shared my classroom with an amazing, I don't remember what year he was in at the time, but experienced teacher um, who, like, was sitting in my room and, like, um, would see my kids and you know, we could have like really long conversations afterwards. Like, what was that about? You know, what mm-hmm. happened there? Which are like my favorite conversations. Yes. Cause they're the best conversations. They're the best. They're the best. And they're what I totally obsess about as a teacher, even now as a college professor. Wait, what happened? Why, why did that discussion fall so flat? Did they not do their reading or did I say something? Did I frame it in a way that? Like, people couldn't get into – I mean, I'm still a completely obsessed with, like, answering those kinds of questions person. Do you read um, Do you read Brian Meyer's stuff? He's doing yes. mathematics. Yes, yes, yes. I love Brian. So he's the coach in my district. Yes, I knew that. And That's we why went, I thought for a second you were at High Tech High, but yes. No, he's out of High Tech now. But yeah, I, know, I know. We went up through the credential program together. Oh, cool. So we've been friends for a while, and they're, um, his whole teacher partner program, it looks like my school it might get an opportunity to have one teacher do it next year mm-hmm. um, on our campus. for, And it's, it's a small thing. It'd be like one period a day. And what does it do? What's the structure of it? So that's the thing is like we sort of get to decide uh-huh. what it looks like and what I'm hoping it looks like. What I'm pushing for um, is uh, like going into classrooms and having the conversations you're talking about. Yeah, those are my favorite. And I'm like really super into it and like reading a lot and coming back with research and doing all of those things. But basically just like going to classrooms and just like writing down whatever the teacher wants you to write down and then just asking questions. I love that. Um, That can be so – I mean the thing that like having worked with teachers on structures like that – the thing that is really tricky is that there has to be like a shared understanding of what the goals are. Yes. Because I have been in situations where like we sort of set up something like that, a structure mm-hmm. like that, and then um, somebody is not really like on the same page and they think that their job is to kind of tell the teacher everything mm-hmm. that went wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not our game plan here so like we'll often use a structure of like kind of like a notice and wonder thing of yep you know I was wondering why 
you answered that kid's question in that way. Right. You know? Or I was wondering, like, what you expected when you asked that question. Exactly. Wow. Were you, what were you hoping to hear? Yeah. Yeah. No, th- that's totally – I think because one of the things, like, part of the reason why, like, um, my Incredible Hulk thing of, um, <laughs> you know, teachers should just really drives me crazy is because classrooms are such complicated places and – there is often a history that's completely invisible to folks just strolling in for the first time. Right. And you don't know that history when you're just visiting. You don't know why it's like super important that that kid got to talk that time, even though what they were saying seemed a little like a distraction or whatever. You don't know how important that is unless you've been there. For the whole time. And so, like, there's there's things that teachers, classroom teachers who are there, like, they're using judgment that isn't visible to um, the visitor. Right. And so that humility is so, so important for making those kinds of observational um, partnerships successful. Yeah. And we are um... – we're a new school and we're sort of like one of those model schools where we mm-hmm. have like a million people coming in and out of our classrooms every single That's day. That's hard. Yeah. So we have a really great uh, professional development group we work with called uh-huh. Teachers Development Group. I know them. Oh, I love them. So do you guys do studio days and yes, stuff? Yes. I was the studio teacher last year. Okay. Yeah. Those are great. I really love them. And so this, so our, so our, when you're talking about shared goals, our shared goals would come from that work. Mm. that we're doing because we all use that sort of shared language yeah that is super helpful um but they came in she brought our person brought um a group of teachers from san diego city schools and they came into my classroom and i talked to them a little afterwards and they were like oh i wish you had called on this one kid because i didn't see him like presenting to the class and i was like you came in 10 minutes late he talked for like five minutes in front of the class before you walked in exactly like your your perception of him as someone who doesn't talk in front of the class was confused. Right, right. You missed a really vital part of the story by not being there for that first five minutes. And and that that kind of thing, I mean, sometimes it's the first five minutes and sometimes it's like, no, the last nine weeks. <laughs> right. You missed that this kid participates every single day and I didn't need to call on him even though what he was thinking was brilliant. And also, or it could have been that like we've had some issues that other kids feel intimidated by him. So we had an agreement that today he was going to try to work on listening more. Right. You know, which is like, it's not unreasonable to ask that of a child. Oh, no. You don't do that all the time. But, you know, sometimes that's what you need to do to kind of get the norms of your classroom going well. And a lot of times... Kids who talk a lot, like, they can benefit from learning, thinking about how do I learn as a listener instead of as a talker. Yeah, I had a couple this year that I worked on. You have to go the whole day today by only asking questions. Yes. You can't exactly. answer anything for the entire period. Exactly. And and that's not, like, some. there are people who probably would hear that and be like, oh, my gosh. But I say you haven't really... If, you, if that's your reaction, you haven't really wrestled with how hard it is to orchestrate productive discourse. Oh, my God. So with, a, with a group of 
really heterogeneous teenagers. Like, and I don't just mean that like as learners, but like temperamentally heterogeneous. Oh God. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, um, I, so I don't try to talk this much usually, but I am, I, I am really good at classroom management. Mm -hmm. It is a skill that I have. I have a lot of personality. Yes, you do. (laughs) And I can't help that. Um, and so usually for me, I have a group of freshmen this year who are my first period class who I literally got into good mathematical habits in April, Whoa. maybe March. Yeah. And I worked so hard. I believe it. And I got them into good mathematical habits in March. Yeah. I think I might have had that class too. Oh my God. And it, and it I, was like, and it's so embarrassing in some ways because I'm not- like... I tried real hard, but when I think about how much I worked on just, like, how do you talk to each other? What does it look like when we're listening? Exactly. And, you know, if they haven't ever learned to participate in class that way, that's a lot to learn. Oh, and it's like, I watch, it's things like saying sentences that I thought I would never say. Here's what it looks like when you're listening. You're looking at the person who's talking, you're not on your iPad, your pencil's in your hand, and you're ready. That's right. And sometimes you need to break it down like that. Like that much. Yep. Yeah. It was it was a rough they were not a rough group, but just um You had to develop new skills for <laughs> you had to make things explicit in ways that you haven't had to in the past. And now I want to go back to my first year of teaching and teach those sixth graders again because I think I could do it now. <laughs> oh yeah, I I don't know that I ever conquered the art of teaching sixth graders. Um I didn't do it until maybe this year. I think now I could do it. But I taught them my first year, and I was not very good at it. They're hard. You know, it's funny because, like, even though I don't – I'm not a big – as you might suspect, I'm not big on, like, value-added modeling and stuff like that. Right. One of the things that I think is funny from that research is that the group – that where the value added models are least related to the quality of instruction are middle school students. Really? Uh-huh. And I, that cracks me up because I'm like, of course that just describes my experiences teaching middle school. Because <laughs> I was like, you know, it's much more about what's going on with you than what I plan. Like every day. Every day, it's much more about what's going on with y'all. So I just need to know that I have to, like, take the temperature every morning. So what are we ready to do today? Are you going to be a bunch of goofballs? Or are we going to actually be able to get some stuff done? Hmm. Or are we going to get some stuff done while you are also incredible goofballs? Yes. <laughs> that's, that's actually, I think, the happy, like, balance, if you can get it there. Um, but anyway, I, I have probably like the deepest respect of all the teachers for the people who are really good middle school, middle school teachers. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that that you have to have it going on, like on every level to be a really good middle school teacher. You have to be really good mathematically cause you have to be able to go with whatever, like their strange, funny ideas are mm-hmm. and be able to somehow translate that to like mathematical stuff. And you have to have the relationship stuff like, down cold you have to have wells and wells of empathy for things that most adults don't really think about as like issues or problems but that are very very meaningful and consequential 
to kids at that point in their life. I don't and know. you have to have the management skills. Yes. Which are like, like ninja management skills. <laughs> right. Like I am forever grateful that I taught middle school for my first year of teaching because mm-hmm. it changed all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And summer camp, years and years of summer yeah, camp. Yeah, summer years. camp, you seem, I was, I wondered it. Well, you told me early on, you said that you did. Yeah. I, I've known a lot of um, new teachers who have that camp counselor experience. And man, could they wrangle a group. Mm-hmm. You know? Can you, um, really quick, because I don't know if everyone listening knows, can you describe the value-added model? Sure. So value-added modeling. Boy, I should, probably shouldn't have opened up that can of worms. but um, <laughs> It can be quick. I just yeah. feel like you mentioned it, and yeah, I don't sure, know that sure. everyone knows. Yeah. No, so it's the idea that we can determine – it's a very outcome-based idea of what good teaching is, that we can tell who's a good teacher – based on what they produce in the way of test scores. So it comes from sort of <laughs> economic ideas of quality. And, and um, at, you know, so there's a lot of places where that whole construct can go wrong. It assumes that test scores are measuring what we value in good teaching. It assumes that the measurements themselves are actually, like, valid and reliable, right. somehow related to what teachers are actually doing in their classroom. So there's, there's so many ways that it can break down. And most, um, most people I, I respect have said it's really not a good idea. And there's actually been quite a few papers now that show um, pretty vivid examples of why as a measurement system, it, um, it misses a lot. It's not valid and reliable. But it's it's very appealing to policymakers who are seeking ways to hold schools accountable and all the discourses around teacher quality and that we just need to get good teachers in the classroom, ignoring sort of some of the things you and I have been talking about, right. about systems that support good teaching, which is a distinction that I think is really important. And anyway, I can go on and on about... <laughs> no, that's... that's. Did you follow... Um... I don't know how long you've been in the Mitboss, but way back when, uh, did you ever read Jason Buell's blog? Yes, I have. Okay, so way back when he wrote some really interesting stuff about why our model of testing makes literally no sense. I don't know that I've read that, but I agree with that. It was kind of amazing, and it was like very research-based around like the 6th, 7th, 8th grade like California state tests, which no longer exist in that form, but about uh-huh. how you can't compare sixth grade to seventh grade and about how yeah. just because you pass sixth, seventh grade doesn't mean you're going to pass eighth grade. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of, I, I've actually studied the testing stuff, um, not in California, but elsewhere in some detail. And it, I, I tried to kind of, you know, I always like to push myself and not just, you know, cave to skepticism, but to be like, well, maybe there is something here. I haven't really found much that's redeeming about it. Um, there's like isolated stories that I've managed to come across about here's a situation where this school wasn't really acknowledging how smart this kid was. And she managed to kick some serious tush on the state test and was therefore able to get promoted into honors classes that they did not see her as qualified for. 
Like I have captured sort of isolated stories like that, but as far as I can tell in my data anyway, those are like the, the great minority of, of what I've been seeing. Right. And were we to like all of the other things that you would rather we put in place should catch those things. Yeah, you would exactly like forming relationships with children. Exactly. And, you know, some of the structures you're talking about really valuing at your school about having systems for ongoing learning and professional development. What right. a neat idea. Yeah. You know, that to me is like a way better place to invest in teacher quality. Right. Teaching quality is to say, well, let's, you know, really make a culture where People can learn and visit each other's classrooms and right. have ways that are safe and supportive for ongoing improvement. Yeah, my principal likes to joke that we're we're not a um, we're not like a revolutionary school. We just read the research and do what the research says. That's hilarious. Like he's really big on that because people will come to our school and they'll be like, "All oh, the things you're doing are so like for are so like revolutionary and new." And he's like, "No, no." <laughs> I just read what the research said was best practices, and then we do our best to follow them. That's pretty awesome. Now I'm just singing a song. Really? He is awesome. My principal is pretty cool, actually. I like him a lot, and I think he does a spectacularly good job. Guys, did you hear the line... Where Lonnie said, sometimes our classrooms are completely full of outliers. That to me is like the best thing I've ever heard an educational researcher say. Because it's so true. Sometimes our classrooms are completely full of outliers. Doesn't it make you feel crazy when you're like, no, but oh, it does not mean that your children can't or shouldn't do anything. But it does mean that you have to think about them as individuals and not as... A collective hive mind, which to be fair, you should probably never be thinking of your children as a collective hive mind, but that's okay. So anyway, uh, thank you for listening to this half of this week. I wanted to do a couple of things. One is that I wanted to invite you to ask me any questions because next week's is going to be a little shorter. So if you could tweet at me at Soph Germain or at Lonnie, maybe Lonnie will answer questions too. I don't know. Lonnie's got more of a life than I do. Let's be honest. Um, but if you tweet at me some questions about anything Lonnie and I talked about, if you're looking for links to stuff Lonnie and I talked about, if you just tweet at me some stuff, I will either tell you here or include the links on my blog. Or if you have questions from other episodes of Chalkline, uh, someone already asked me about restorative justice, which I have like maybe mentioned on here a couple times. I'm going to do my best to find someone to talk to you guys about that. I don't want to do it myself because I don't think I'm an expert, but I have a couple of experts at my school who might be willing to come on and talk to you about it. I really think it is worth some talk and some thinking. It's a really important part of what we do at my school. So if there's anything else that you're like, Anne, you do this thing and you never talk about it. Or Anne, you talked about this one thing real casually. What else is going on in your life? Or Anne, there's this person who I desperately want to hear on Chalkline. Get at me. All right. I'm going to get back to enjoying my summer vacation and attempting to build this Ikea dresser not badly. Happy Sunday, friends. Boop, 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 boop.